1 Corinthians chapter 7, we are going to try and pick up from where we left off here a few weeks ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, our text covers verses 3 through 5, but we're going to go back and begin reading in verse 1. This is the word of God through the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, unquote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, that's an important word there, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Boy, I tell you what, when you read things like this, this, sometimes you wonder if, if the world wouldn't surely behead you on the street corner, if you were found reading such things in public places. And it just sadly shows you how far we've come from being a biblical central um, culture, really, to, to what we experience and what we, we have now and observe now. Um, these words the apostle speaks will not sit well on the modern ear. But they are truths, nonetheless. And of course, there are reasons for that. Obviously, over time, you know, there is the experience of abuses and, and some of these, these understandings. There are uh, misinterpretations and there are uh, many violations that come uh, that are not consistent with what Paul is saying. And that's why I think today is going to be important for us. We're going to be able to expound and kind of iron out what it is exactly Paul is pointing us to when he says the things that he says in our text. Quick reminder about verses 1 and 2, the things that we have already kind of wrestled with. We need to remember that what Paul is doing in verse 1 is he is... He is speaking back to a correspondence that he had received from the church. There were some matters um, that they had asked his advice on, apparently, or questioned him on, whatever the situation may be. We don't know exactly what they were. The assumption is that they were concerning uh, the Christian life and sexuality. And so whatever those matters were, um, it is because of that, uh, that, that situation, that conversation, that correspondence, from them to the apostle that Paul is now going to respond. And the last part of verse 1 has caused some uh, confusion, consternation perhaps, and most of the older translations and the older modern translations are going to translate 
um, the last part of verse 1 as Paul making a statement. In other words, he's drawing a conclusion. So he's giving them the short answer. This is how they're going to, to translate. And the short answer is concerning the matters of which they wrote concerning the Christian life and sexuality, Paul is going to give them a quick answer before he expounds a long one. And the short answer for him is, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Okay. And so um, I think it's the Revised Standard Version actually keeps putting periods at the end of these statements. Concerning the matters about which you wrote, period. It's good for a man not to, have, uh, not to touch a woman, period. But because of temptation, he should have his own wife and her, her own husband, period. As if he's just giving these little bits of declarative statements. But uh, what we've been able to recognize over time is that what we have here from the Apostle Paul in, in the original languages is not de declarations or declarative statements or straightforward propositions. He is actually regurgitating or requoting, restating what the matter was of which they had written him about. And the matter that was presented to him, and the one he's going to respond to, is the matter of their dogma or their maxim or their mantra, which had concluded for them that it is more spiritual, it is better for a man if he never even touched a woman. The problem with translating in such strict ways is that even though the word touch in the Greek, uh, the word that's represented in the Greek by the word touch means touch, um, the understanding that Paul is portraying is not the strict interpretation of touch. He's not concerned about whether or not a man uh, physically makes contact with a woman, you know, touching her hand, putting his arm around her, holding her hand, um, brushing shoulders. That's not Paul's concern, okay? In the scripture, the word touch, as we saw last time we were together, is a euphemism. We can go back to Genesis where Abraham and Abimelech, King Abimelech, and Sarah, he sees Sarah, he wants her. He asks Abraham about her. She's my sister. Oh, good news. I'm going to take her for my wife. God comes to him in a dream and says, you're a dead man. He says, well, wait a minute. What did I do? He says, you took another man's wife. He said, no, I didn't. I took a sister. God says, that's what he told you. That's not what's happening. And Abimelech looks like, I don't want this. That's not my intention. You know, my heart was pure. God says, I know it's pure. And this is why, and here's the, the key statement. This is why I did not permit you to touch her. Okay. Well, the reason why he had been warned in the dream that he was a dead man was because he had intended to take her as his wife. Well, more than just simply physically brushing her shoulder, marriage relationships go a little bit more sensual than that. Okay? And so the idea that Abimelech did not touch Sarah was good news for Abimelech. And that's something God did not permit him to do by coming to him in a dream because the word touch there is the euphemism for sexual relationship. There's a reason I did not let you have sexual relationships with her because she is not his sister. She is, in fact, his wife. But Lex's like, well, you know my heart. You know I was innocent in this. I was only going on information I had. And that's what the story presents to us. In the same way, the use of the word touch in the Greek, that's translated strictly in the English as such, is the euphemism for sexual relationship. And so what we've noticed is that Paul is actually dealing with the idea of, of the temptation to sexual immoralities, 
the acting out sexually in improper and ungodly ways. That's the concerned issue that Paul has here when he addresses what he does in chapter 7. So, you know, growing up, as I mentioned before, you know, you shouldn't touch a woman. It means you, had, you couldn't brush her. If you brushed her, you're violating scripture. So you at all times kept six inches between you and someone of the opposite sex. That's not Paul's concern. His concern is the practice of sexual immoralities. And this is identified for us in what he says next. Because there's the temptation to sexual immoralities... Because we are sexual beings. God created us as such, right? We're sexual beings. And the temptation is to act on those, but they will be immoral. They will be corrupted uh, expressions if they are not done in accordance with God's um, declared ways. So because of that temptation to sexual immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so when they said, it's good for a man to be abstinent, always, Paul says, you do not know what you're saying. There's a reason why you are given in marriage. There's a benefit that comes to you in being given to marriage. And one of those benefits is a sanctifying grace by which you are able to act out in rightful ways, in pleasurable ways, in good intended ways, sexual desires and passions towards the opposite sex without being immoral. So you're actually missing those who would insist on forbidding marriage, as Paul tells Timothy, those who would insist on abstinence is going to miss out on a sanctifying grace that God has given mankind within the bonds of marriage. And so, listen, Christians, it's, it's, very, it's very damaging if we are going to um, present sexual expression to our children as evil and wrong and bad. You're basically saying that what God created for good has now become so unredeemable that it's to be avoided at all times. I've had conversations just very recently with um, some of my family members. My, they, they admitted to me that when they were first married, they struggled with the immediate transition from no, no, no to go, go, go. And it, it brought confusion immediately into the marriage. And how the acting out in sexual ways could in one instance be such an evil thing, a wrong thing, and now they're being encouraged to go at it. You're free. And so in, in the mind and psyche and, 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 and spirit of an individual, that's, that's the wrong attitude to portray to your children, especially as Christians. What we need to portray is there is a proper way that God intends for that to be expressed. What is wrong and what is evil and what is bad is the improper and the immoral expressions of what God has created for a good scenario. Right? And that's, that is the, that's the propensity of sin, to take what God has said is good and to turn it into something wrong and evil. And so I just want to encourage us as parents, Christian parents, that we should never, never portray sexual expression as something that is wrong and evil. Right? Now, we have to be guarded. You, you're watching a football game, and without fail, there's going to be a commercial. Right? There's going to be an advertisement. If you're watching a YouTube video, if you're on the Internet, if you're searching Google, there's always going to be something that springs up. Right? That is going to portray what God has given as good, 
for something that is wrong. And they need to understand the distinction. What makes that expression wrong and this one right? It's that it is being engaged in by faith. Right? By faith. Following God's intended purposes for those right expressions is not only for glory's sake, but also for a spiritual benefit, which Paul then argues out for us. So the mantra, the maxim that Paul received from the church, which was, it's super spiritual to be abstinent, even in marriage, so that you avoid any kind of temptation to do wrong with sexual expression, Paul says, you do not know what you are saying. Abstinence does not make the heart grow fonder before God. Okay? It will actually increase the dangers that you're going to experience under temptation. One of the, one of the things that we see in this expression by Paul is some of the language that he uses. Right? Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have. Each woman should have. Right? The husband should give. The wife should give. Like These are things that are expected and must be done. Paul is encouraging these things. And then he says in verse 5, don't deprive. We're going to speak to that in just a little bit. Don't deprive each other. Except, and then I love this expression, perhaps. Not even all the time. Whenever you want to go into a, a, a time of prayer, it doesn't always have to include an agreement to abstinence. Now, it might include an agreement to abstinence, but perhaps that's the only time you would dare do this, is if you both were determined to give all heart, soul, spirit, strength, mind, and body into your prayer exercise. And you do not want to be distracted by other concerns and other needs. And so maybe you'll agree, perhaps maybe you'll agree for a short time, but a very short time, but come back together. Because Paul says, we all know that each one of us lacks self-control. All right? Any man who... Any man or woman who tells you that they are beyond being tempted to sin by way of sexual passion desire is either a robot or a straight-out liar. Okay? And again, we understand that what is gleaned from those relationships is different for a man and a woman, perhaps. Right? What a man finds satisfying in the relationship, it might be something completely different than what the woman is extracting as satisfaction from sexual expression. And so we just have to understand that there's different meanings, different uh, ways of satisfaction, different uh, benefits that are coming out of that. But Paul says we all have the need and we all lack the self-control. Okay? And by the way, you remember the argument he gave in chapter 6. Just because the flesh has cravings doesn't mean we feed it. The, the body is not like the stomach. The stomach, you feed every time it craves. But when the time of our death comes, the stomach will perish away. The body is going to have an extended eternal spiritual purpose. It's going to be redeemed as a spiritual body at the day of the Lord. And so you can't say, well, just like our stomach is hungry, our body has sexual desire, so we just feed it. That's, that's actually the mantra of the world. You won't deny it's natural, right? You've, you've heard that. It's just natural. Your body desires that. Well, Paul says, okay, but the body was not made for that. The body has that, but the body was not made for that. The body was made for 
Who, church? The Lord, that's right, for Christ. And he, he identifies that for us. And so it's just interesting how Paul is, is pushing back against the maxim that seemed to have been championed by the Corinthian church as something, something really spiritual. And he's going to push back against that. So abstinence does not make the heart fonder before God. Um, and then we talked about what touch actually means, right? It is the euphemism for sexual expression. And so that's what Paul is concerned about addressing here. Um, and then we mentioned also that marriage intimacy is a divinely appointed spiritual safeguard. And Paul identified that for us in verse 2. Because there's that temptation to sexual immorality, uh, a man has a wife and a woman has a husband. Right? So, you know, when women, when, when, when your husbands come to you and they're, they're, they're hankering, don't roll your eyes and say, oh, brother. Right? Don't begrudge this. It is a sanctifying grace. Or sometimes men, we're, we're in that position, right? Our minds are busy. We focus on something else. We've got projects we want to do. And all of a sudden, the wife is ready. And you're like, oh, man, right now? Okay? Um, we have to understand that this, these are sanctifying means that God has placed into the marriage covenant. All right? And it's not a time to be selfish and self-serving. This is a time to paint the picture accurately. And what is the picture? What's the mystery that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 5? He's actually speaking about the relationship of Christ and his church. Aren't you glad that Christ never rolls his eyes when you come to him in need? Amen? So we, we paint that picture. We exude that picture. He never refuses us in our time of need. All right, we come to ver verses 3 and following. Verses 3 through 5 speaks to a particular sense regarding sexual intimacy in marriage. And this sense is going to stand very staunchly in opposition to the self-centered ideology of modern Western culture, which embodies this ideology of self-centeredness by statements like, my body, my choice, we've heard that. Um, just say no. These are things that the world promotes as being necessary for the self-exaltation of passion, desire, and satiation of need. And really what this is is an expression of the self-serving, self-promoting, self-satisfying spirit of this present evil age. We are self-worshippers, and so we are not surprised when worldly propositions bristle at the abrasiveness of gospel truth which is what Paul is going to lay out to the Corinthian married couples. What Paul is going to teach in verses 3 and 5 will offend the senses of progressive positions. It will also expose why divorce has become an epidemic within the world of human cultures. What Paul is going to do is thrust the, gospel, the gospel's dagger into the heart of broken worldly wisdom. One of the main reasons for divorce is, well, I'm just, I'm not satisfied anymore with her. I don't, I'm not attracted to her anymore. Or I don't find him as winsome anymore. He's not as, he's not as poetic and 
sensitive as he was when we were first married or when we were dating especially. All of a sudden, the luster has wore off and now we're like, we're tired. We're not receiving from that what we were getting, right? And we call that love. And so we don't love them anymore. That's what we're saying. And so then we pursue the course of divorce. And even within the church, this is an epidemic. Last time I read that divorce had just crossed the 50% ratio within evangelical churches. 50% within evangelical churches. There's something wrong there, church. We're, we're not understanding something rightly. Paul is going to lay this out for us. In this portion of Paul's letter, we are given some very helpful counsel for healthy sexual and marriage relationships that paint the gospel picture accurately, that strengthens the marriage relationally and protects the husband and wife spiritually. And so I would encourage you to take heed this morning as the Apostle Paul lays out for us instruction from verses 3 through 5. There are three things in particular that Paul's going to impress upon his readers from these verses. Number one is this. There are conjugal rights. And you have to give them. There are conjugal rights and you have to submit to them. This bit of instruction is loaded with practical application. First, we note that Paul's concern regarding sexual expression is for mutuality, reciprocity, and pleasure. That's right. And pleasure. Why are we tempted unto sexual immoralities? To express ourselves in improper, immoral ways? is because we do find sexual expression satisfying and pleasurable, as we should. And so what this tells us is that sex is not purely for procreation. There are some fundamentalist Christians who believe that sex is only for procreation, and so it is off-limits throughout the year, except for the purpose of having a child. Except for one fundamentalist, reformed individual that I'm thinking of right now, he does allow for celebration on holidays. So there's that. So everyone's looking forward to Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? And New Year's. Man, it's like back-to-back-to-back holidays here, right? Uh, The fall and winter is our favorite time of the year. Well, that's just nonsense. This is nonsense. There is a pleasure that is to be received from the sexual engagements of a husband and a wife. But not only just for pleasures, there is this concept of mutuality that's to be developed within that relationship. This is a mutual engagement. Okay? There is no place within Christian marriage for one spouse to force themselves on another. That's vile. That's abusive. That's that's smearing the picture. And I think Christian couples need to hear this. So if one spouse is feeling like he has to constantly or she has to constantly force herself upon the spouse, there's something broken there, couple. This needs to be addressed 
biblically and spiritually. But secondly, Paul is going to reveal that exclusive rights over sexual expression do not belong to one spouse or the other. There are conjugal rights that are connected to covenant marriage relationships. And there are no exclusive rights over those expressions by either one of the spouses. The Greek word that is translated as right, conjugal right in the ESV, that word is a word that indicates the paying of a debt. Listen to this. It indicates the paying of a debt rather than the conferring of a favor. Right? So if your spouse thinks that whenever this happens for them, it's a favor you're giving them, then you have misinterpreted the spiritual gifting of sexual expression and marriage relationship. You are not giving them anything as a favor. The word here represents a debt that is owed. You have joined together in mutual union. The two have become one flesh, is the exact statements of Scripture. We're going to speak to that, I'm going to expound that in just a moment. But I want you to think about that. Both spouses, from Paul's teaching here in our text, both spouses are sexual equals in the marriage relationship as they share all things together commonly. I want you to think about this. They share all things together commonly. You know, one of the, one of the things I, I missed with the, I think this is in Hebrews, right? It is. The rite of Hebrews encourages that the marriage bed should be kept holy. The marriage bed should be kept pure. And if we're not careful, we just think of this in strict terms of, of spiritual Christian holiness and godliness. But it dawned on me just recently that by, expression, by, an, by an expression like that, that the marriage bed should be kept undefiled, it's the same type of insistence that we would give to the church as a theological entity it's the same expression we insist upon at the Lord's Supper. The Supper should be kept holy unto God. I mean, every time we take the Supper, which we're going to do next week, by the way, so hang in there. Um, but every time we take the Supper, we challenge you, don't we? With what this is picturing and representing. And we warn you, do not take this if this is not representative of you. We have been made holy by the blood and sacrifice, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is a covenant experience and it is holy unto God. The church is to be holy. Your pastors are to be holy. Your marriage relationship is to be holy. The bed is to be holy. These are all things that correlate to the gospel. I had like this ha-ha moment when this, this connection was made. The writer of Hebrews is not simply making a, a, a factual, physical statement. He's making a spiritual one. The marriage bed remains undefiled. Why? 
because of what it is picturing for us. We are mutually unified as one with the other. So you, you protect that. Just like in the gospel, we are made mutually one with Christ. This is why in chapter 6, Paul says you have to protect the gospel. And later he's going to talk about the reason why we do not have communion at the pagans' temples and why we do not yoke ourselves unequally with unbelievers. There is no common union in those things. So I hope you're, you're beginning to sense that sexual expression within marriage, especially for Christians, is a spiritual reality more than it is a physical satisfaction. What the physical satisfaction does for us is it reminds us of what we have as a union with Christ in that relationship. Our satisfaction is ultimately in Christ of which our physical marriage pictures for us. And so do you find delight in your wife? Do you find delight in your husband? What's going on there? Paul says, I'm sharing with you a mystery. It's a mystery. Because what I'm really speaking of is that relationship, that satisfaction, desire, and pleasure that is met in that relationship between Christ and his church. Man, this is why we have to, we have to keep insisting on the definition of marriage being what God has defined it. This is why as a church we have to protect it from all of its immorality and all of its defilements. We have to insist that marriage continues in our modern culture, continues to be what it has traditionally been pressed to be. Why? Because it's bigger than us. It's bigger than you, bigger than me. I mentioned in passing in our last sermon that the needs of the wife are met in different ways than that of the husband. Conjugal expressions when pursued by way of the spirit of the gospel are means by which the marriage covenant relationship provides and meets many of the covenant obligations. You know, when you don't feel like conjugally expressing in any given moment, but you do it out of preference for your spouse, out of love for your spouse. What are you affirming? What are you promoting? What are you picturing? Well, you're picturing love and affirmation and affection, attention, assurance, safety, comfort, confidence. You're building familiarity. You're learning sensitivity. You're growing in awareness of your loved one. All of these things that we experience in our relationship with Christ. This is how we love one another. For Christ loved the church even to the end that he gave his life for her. So your inconvenience, spouse, is a little teeny compared to the inconvenience that Christ laid out for his church, his bride. So we have to guard against this. When we don't feel like it, we don't want to. When timing's not right, and we're not into the mood, or however we want to express it, You know, that's, that is the self-centered, self-focused, self-exalting, self-preferring spirit that the world brings to sexual expression. 
And this is why now in our own culture, marriage is even refused for just the rotation of partners because you have to keep what you're getting fresh and new throughout those relationships. And when it gets old and dead and boring and nonchalant and less, less beneficial to you, what do you do? Well, you dump them. You move on. You get a new partner. And, and this, is, this is the lie that has crept into the mentality of sexual expression. And Paul is having to warn the Corinthian church, you yourself are falling into this. Improper, unbiblical, ungospel positions of sexual expression. expression. And so he tells us in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her, notice, conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. You should give them. You should give them. But then he moves on and explains why we should give them, even when we don't want to give them. It's because you don't have authority over your own body. <laughs> Try telling a young college-age feminist, modern feminist, that. See what happens to you. I'm sorry, young college student, you feminist, you pro-choice my body, my choice, individual, you don't have power over your own body. <gasps> As I mentioned, this statement alone is enough to create a complete meltdown of the worldly wisdom of this age. You'll be labeled and called all kinds of vile things. You'll be labeled all kinds of atrocities. You'll be the bigot of the worst sort. To say that a man has authority over the body of a woman... But to interpret this as an ancient male-dominating woman-oppressing ideology is to distort and twist what Paul is actually teaching. And certainly, it removes Paul's teaching from its necessary context, in particular, the context of the gospel. Now, you may have space to try and make such an argument, except for this one fact, that Paul doesn't say this just about the woman. Paul doesn't say, hey, woman, you don't have power over your body. That belongs to your husband. And then he ends the statement. It doesn't end there, does it? This is likewise true for the man. And men, husbands, you do not hold authority over your own body, but your wife does. So see what he's done? He's, he's equally manifest this spiritual principle. Now this is really, really important because this, this takes in all kinds of angles concerning situations of conflict within a moment's time of conjugal expression. There are times that a man may want to have the authority for his body pressed upon the situation when he may be better served to refrain. And the woman would be encouraged to give when she would want to refrain. You see, Paul says, the authority over the bodies do not, do not pertain to the individual. You are not your own God. You are not your own person. 
You belong to each other, and ultimately you belong to your Savior. We need to understand that what Paul is giving is not a provision or permission for relational and sexual abuse against the sexes. This is not a right that trumps the well-being and care of the spouse. Neither does this permit a unilateral insistence on particular preferences within the realm of conjugal expressions. This is not a promotion of lust over love. You see, sexual expression is actually a dying to self for the purpose of exalting and satisfying and pleasing the other. If we could engage in sexual ways within our marriage relationship with that being the preset controlling element, it would transform marriage relationships. Transform it! You would see the divorce rate, especially the church, drop to the floor. Because you would realize that this is not about me being satiated in my needs, but this is about me being a need filler. And oh, what expression of love would come out of such a mindset. We love because he first loved us. There's the gospel manifestation in covenant marriage relationship. That, that, that stands starkly against the mindset of modern sexuality. If that was the case, the, 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 the pornography industry would drop into the shadows in a heartbeat. But it's the number one controlling, money-making business in Western culture because precisely because we do not go into sexual relationships with that mindset. Paul's argument is understood clearly for us by the word translated authority, which represents a Greek word that means to bring under the power of. The primary point of the statement is well observed in the commentary given by the Methodist pastor theologian Joseph Benson when he commented on this verse by saying, The wife hath not power over her own body, namely, in this respect, but by the marriage covenant hath transferred it, that's the authority, to her husband. And likewise, the husband hath not power over his own body, but it is, as it were, the property of the wife. Their engagements being mutual so that on every occasion, listen to this, on every occasion, every occasion, conscience obliges them to remain appropriated to each other. Man, what a statement of covenant love. The right of the wife to her husband's body being here represented as precisely the same with the husband's right to her body. It excludes the husband then from simultaneous, uh, simultaneous polygamy 
Otherwise, the right of the husband to his wife's body would not exclude her from being engaged sexually with another during her husband's lifetime. What Paul is doing here, the general point being that he is chopping at the knee the practice of not only religious temple prostitution, but simultaneously he condemns the practice of all sexually immoral activities capable by either of the parties. So such practices as open marriages, we often hear that expression, right? Open marriages, swinging, wife swapping, orgies, polygamous marriages, like these, these things make modern day reality shows, right? Was it sister wives and all these other weird, all of these are being condemned and prohibited by the reality of the gospel. So listen, Christian, don't be feeding your mind those things. Don't be watching those shows. Don't be watching those programs. Don't be reading those books. They're condemned by the gospel. They're only going to feed into the prohibition and the eventual downgrade of your marriage relationship if you give yourselves over to those conclusions. And this is why Paul addresses the Corinthians. They have made such conclusions as this. Then lastly, thirdly, verse 5, he brings up another proposition within biblical marriage as concerns sexual expression when he says, do not deprive one another. Do not, do not deprive one another. If we're to understand that each of the spouses has conjugal rights in the marriage relationship. And consequently, we have a debt to fulfill that, right? Because it's about a debt being owed rather than a favor being bestowed. And if we understand that our bodies are under the authority of the other so that sexual expression is not about our satisfaction, about what we get out of the experience, but of satisfying our spouse and their needs, then this last reality will be more acceptable to our senses. We will not be prone to depriving our spouse by refusing them the benefit they receive in conjugal intimacies. We won't be lazy. We won't be half-hearted in our expressions. We won't look for excuses for why we are refusing. Our marriage will be mutually desirous for intimacy. There will be equally benefited outcomes by way of conjugal expressions. Our marriages will be strengthened against sinful temptations, against sexual immoralities. And they will ultimately serve for us as a means of sanctifying grace, which points us back to the steadfast, faithful relationship that Christ has with us, his church. Let me just say one more thing since we're at this point, and we're going to conclude with this for today. There's something else that needs to be mentioned here about not depriving one another 
It's unfortunate because I've seen this very clearly, very present in especially young, the younger generation of Christian married couples. Okay? So we need to listen very carefully to this. If you're older and this does not include you, then you need to hear this so that you're ready to address this with the youngers. Okay? You've got to be examples. This is not, this is not taboo topic. Okay? So you, you older Christian women need to be ready to encourage younger Christian women. And you older men need to be able to encourage younger Christian men. And fathers, we need to be able to teach our sons and, wife, and, and husband, or, uh, mothers your daughters. And so on. But listen to this. This is one of the greatest abuses that I have witnessed today in so-called Christian marriage relationships. And that is That is the use of sex as a punishment or reward. Sex cannot be leveraged. Like right now, this is just a Sila moment. I will give you this if you let me buy this. Well, because you didn't do the to-do list, then I'm not going to give you any tonight. I mean, if you listen to what you're doing to the marriage relationship by such expressions of like that, Sex cannot be leveraged. For this very reason, you don't own it. It's not yours to give. It's yours to provide. The giving came from God. And what you do is when you take what God has given and you take ownership of it and then you use it for your own self-purposes, you have become an idolater. But not only that, you begin to rip not chisel, you begin to blow up foundational elements of the gospel within that marriage relationship. The extreme and extensive harm and hurt to that marriage relationship will come to you on so many levels. Think of the trust issues, the love issues, the faithfulness issues, the assurance issues, the just whatever issue you can think of that marriage is supposed to meet, you, you blow it away at the knees. And now your marriage has become a business transaction. And don't you think for a moment that that will not affect you spiritually. I remember a few years ago, a Christian man telling me, godly man, Elder in his church, faithful in ministry, loved others. He told me one time, he said, you know, I used to struggle with self-pleasing. And God gave me victory over that. But as of late, my wife has been uneager to share in sexual expression with me. 
and I'm beginning to struggle with the urge and temptation to fall back into the detriment that I once was brought out of. So if you think that I'm just making this up, I want you to know this is a true confession from a believing brother who had gained victory over sexual immorality only to be tempted back into it because the marriage relationship was not expressing the sanctifying grace that was meant to be for them their very protection. And he told me the one saving grace that I'm finding is that as I'm getting older, my urges are getting less. <laughs> we don't fight flesh with flesh. What a statement to make. The only reason I'm not finding myself falling to temptation as easily is because I'm now getting older. Listen, church. You, we have to stop looking at the marriage as a means for two people to get what they want to get out of a relationship. We need to remember that our marriage relationships are not two anymore. You, you, when you look at your wife, husbands, you're looking at yourself. And wives, when you look at your husbands, you're looking at yourself. Because the two have been made one flesh. You are not your own. The power over your body belongs to your husband. And husbands, the power of your body belongs to your wife. Sex is a right for each of the partners by virtue of being one with their spouses. I'm going to take you to one verse as we close. It doesn't speak directly to the point Paul's making, but it lays out the principle that he has just argued. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? Spouse, it would be a shame if it was found that you were a spiritual stumbling block to your husband or to your wife. On that day when that spouse is found to be a cheater, and all of a sudden you self-sanctimoniously act abhorred and shocked and hurt, just remember to ask the question, was I faithful and living out to that spouse the sanctifying grace that was given him to be or her to be. Okay? Just remember that. Here's the principle upon which we can argue this point. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh. But nourishes and cherishes it. Again, context is different. The principle is the same. We are one. We are one, and so we, we live as one. We need to understand that God has given us Christian marriage as sanctifying grace, let us not refuse that grace. It is a picture that is to be painted accurately for the world to see. Do not smear it. Do not violate it. 
Do not refuse it. This also means for the mutual building up of the needs and cares of the other. If you feel distant from your spouse, let me encourage you, be more sexually active, physically permitting. If you're finding it hard, then we need to sit down together and have a conversation and say, this is how we're going to try harder to make it easier. If there are hard, bitter feelings, then we need to understand this is an activity that we can use for the purpose of learning forgiveness. Because I get to love and prefer and to affirm and comfort someone whom I have some strong, hurtful feelings against. It's going to be hard to continue to despise and to refuse them with bitter feelings when you're surrendering those to the gospel and loving them in an unconditional way. I bet we didn't realize how spiritually connected our relationship with Christ is to our relationship with our husbands and wives. But we have to be reminded of this. But this is the truth of the scenario. No one ever loved or hated themselves, but they loved themselves to the point of nourishing and cherishing it. Oh, church, remember this is the spirit and attitude that Christ had for us. This is a way we get to live out the gospel one to another. And so may God, by his grace, teach us to renounce all secondary causes and reasons for the purpose of engaging our spouse in gospel affirmation. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It's a holy thing. And let us treat it as such. Let's pray.